following sermon, entitled Being Received Again Into Favor, was preached on the evening of August 21st, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. open God's Word this evening to the book of Leviticus. We will read portions of Leviticus 1 and Leviticus 4. First, let's read from Leviticus 1. Here we will read the first nine verses. And the following verses simply repeat the instruction in the first nine verses, but with respect to different animals that would be brought. Leviticus 1, beginning at verse 1, And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, Let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord. And the priest Aaron's son shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is, by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into his pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that is upon the fire which is upon the altar. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Now let's turn to Leviticus 4. Here we will read the first 12 verses, and the redundancy here is that verses 1 through 12 speak of an offering for a priest. Then if a member of if the congregation sins, and then if a ruler sins, and then if an individual sins. So again, it's largely the same instruction. So let's read the first twelve verses of Leviticus four. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done, and shall do against any of them, If the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head and kill the bullock before the Lord." And the priest that is anointed shall take the bullock's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. 
And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall take off from it all the fat of the bullock for the sin offering, the fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the caul above the liver with the kidneys, it shall he take away, as it was taken off from the bullock of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them upon the altar of the burnt offering, and the skin of the bullock, and all his flesh, and his head, and with his legs, and his inwards, and his dung. Even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place where the ashes are poured out, and burn him on the wood with fire, where the ashes are poured out, shall he be burned. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis these passages and many other that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 5. For tonight's sermon, we will not only consider Lord's Day 5, but also the first part of Lord's Day 6. Beginning at question answer 12. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? God will have His justice satisfied. And therefore, we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? By no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? None. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. What sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? For one who is very man, perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also very God. Why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which hath sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin, and one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Why must He in one person be also very God? That He might by the power of His Godhead sustain in His human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. One of the greatest dangers that we face as Christians is that we lose our sense of appreciation for and wonderment in the good news of the Gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. That is, there's a danger for us that though at one point in our life God's grace was the sweetest sound we had ever heard, 
over time, we've reached the point where we are no longer amazed by God's amazing grace. There's a danger for us that though it may have been true at different stages in our life that when we heard the songs of salvation, our hearts were filled with rapture and joy, we've stagnated to the point where we no longer rejoice in the God of our salvation. And while that danger exists for all of God's people, It is especially a danger for those of us who grew up in the church of Jesus Christ. For those of us who cannot remember a time that we were not saved. That's a grave danger. And that's where Lord's Day 5 comes in. And that it reminds us of the wonder of our salvation and helps us to appreciate our Savior. And it does that in a unique way. See, Lord's Day 5 is the very beginning of the second section of the Catechism. That's evident when we just look at our Psalters. Right above Lord's Day 5, we read the second part of man's deliverance. And so what we'd expect now that we've come to our deliverance is that the first Lord's Day in this section would focus on the person and the work of our Savior Jesus Christ. For after all, God's Word teaches us that there is salvation in no other name besides Jesus Christ. And as those who have been taught by Lord's Days 2-4 through about our sin and our misery, when we get to the second section of the Catechism, we come to the Catechism saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. That is, we're ready for full-blown Christology. And so what we might expect, question, answer, or question 12 to ask would be something along the lines of, who then is our Deliverer? Or what is the good news of the Gospel? But that's not what we read. In fact, Lord's Day 5 does not so much as mention our Savior by name. That does not come until question and answer 18. And the revelation of the Gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ, that's not provided for us until question and answer 19. And in fact, Lord's Day 5 just leaves things entirely theoretical. Lord's Day 5 ends with question and answer 15. What sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for One who is very God and perfectly righteous, and yet one who is also very God. But it doesn't tell us whether such a mediator actually exists. It does not tell us whether such a one, if he exists, would be willing to come down and to save us. And the question becomes, why? Why this approach? Why is the catechism so seemingly slow in getting to Jesus? The answer is so that we learn to appreciate Him again. Because if we're ever going to be appreciative of the wonder of our salvation, we must first see how utterly hopeless it is apart from Him. And that's what the Catechism is teaching us. 
It has taught us that we deserve punishment. It's the reason for the extended question that is question 12. It's really summing up the whole first part of the catechism. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. That's the takeaway from Lord's Days 2-4. through And it's that takeaway that leads us to cry out, is there a way to escape? Is there deliverance? Lord's Day 5 teaches us that from a creaturely point of view, it's utterly impossible. If left to ourselves, there is no hope whatsoever of escaping that judgment. So that our only hope is if God Himself provides a mediator, one who's qualified to make satisfaction for our sins and thus Lord's Day 5 is designed to help us appreciate once again the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. So it's with that in mind that we want to consider this Lord's Day using as our theme being received again into favor. We're pulling that language from the very end of question answer 12. Is there no way by which we may escape the punishment and be again received into favor? The first thing we want to look at is the satisfaction required for being received into God's favor. Second, we're going to notice the creaturely impossibility of us making this satisfaction. And then third, we'll look at the qualified mediator, the only one who has the qualifications to make that satisfaction so that we might be received again into God's favor. Question 12 represents the central question that governs this whole Lord's Day. Question 12 asks, since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? And there's really two things we're asking for and asking about here. On the one hand, we're asking, is there a way to escape the judgment that we deserve? And again, that flows from what we've already been taught that on account of our sinfulness, both our original sins as well as our actual sins, we deserve God's judgment to come upon us. Already in this life, but extending to all eternity. And that leads us to ask, is there a way out of this? Is there a way to escape that we might be delivered from that? But the question is not only is there a way to escape, punishment, there's a positive aspect to the question. Namely, may we be again received into God's favor. And standing behind that question is the recognition that when God created Adam and placed him in the garden, Adam enjoyed God's favor. He was able to live with God in the garden. He was able to speak with God, to walk with God, and to enjoy fellowship with Him. But all of that was lost at the fall so that rather than enjoying God's love and favor, man became the enemy of God. And the question becomes, therefore, is there a way back into that relationship? Since life with God is the the greatest possible good, since that's the only thing that can satisfy the longings of our soul, is there a way whereby we may be made right with God so that we can once again enjoy His favor shining down upon us. 
So it's a twofold question. How may I escape punishment and how can I be received into favor? And the answer is that for that to happen, satisfaction must be made. Answer 12 reads thus, God will have His justice satisfied. And therefore, we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. Catechism speaks of satisfying or making satisfaction. And to satisfy in this sense is to fulfill sufficiently some demand. It's to meet fully some obligation. It's to do enough. To do sufficiently. So that if we use a very simple illustration, if you are going to purchase some good that costs $10,000, you have made satisfaction. You've done enough when you've paid the full $10,000 for that good. So what does God require? Well, the law tells us God requires of us that we live a life of perfect, perpetual obedience. God's law tells us to love Him and to love the neighbor. And therefore, there's a, a love debt that we owe to God. A life of obedience that must be given to Him. That's the requirement. But God's law also tells us that if we fall short of that requirement, there's some punishment that's going to come upon us. Namely, death. That is, insofar as we fail to love Him, then we make ourselves worthy of God's wrath. So that if we are going to make satisfaction, really there's two things that we owe God. On the one hand, from a negative point of view, we owe God the payment of the penalty. We must endure His wrath against our sin, but on the other hand, we still owe Him that love debt. We're still obligated to give Him that life of perfect obedience. So that to go back to that illustration, it's not only that we still owe the $10,000, but now on top of that, we must pay for all sorts of late fees and interest and all these penalties that we've accrued along the way. That's what we owe to God. If we're going to make satisfaction and thereby escape punishment and be received into His favor, we must take care of both aspects of what we owe God. And this was something God taught the Old Testament Israelites very clearly. When He gave to them the whole sacrificial system, and when He often put together, coupled, two of the main sacrifices, namely the burnt offering and the sin offering. We read about these different offerings in the opening chapters of the book of Leviticus. It prescribes the details associated with all the different sacrifices, including the burnt offering as well as the the meat or grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. And really, the sacrificial system as a whole was pointing to the truth that satisfaction needs to be made. But notably, each of the different sacrifices had their own 
peculiar emphasis. They had their different things that made them unique that were emphasizing different truths that the Old Testament Israelites needed to understand. On the one hand, there's the, the burnt offering that's relevant to tonight's sermon. And what was unique about the burnt offering is that the whole of the animal was placed upon the altar of burnt offering. That's evident from Leviticus 1, verse 9. Leviticus 1, verse 9. Let's back up to verse 8. The priest, Aaron's son, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that is upon, that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But the inwards and his legs shall he wash in water. And the idea is not he's going to wash in water and do something else with them, but first wash them in water and then also put them on the altar so that we read in the rest of verse 9, and the priest shall burn all on the altar. Put the entire animal upon the altar. And that makes this unique because with the other offerings, it's, well, this portion's going to go to the priest. Or even this portion is going to go back to the one who makes the sacrifice so that he can have a meal with God. The burnt offering, it's the whole of the animal put upon the altar. And the significance there is that this is a picture of perfect devotion and consecration unto Jehovah. This represents the giving of the whole of oneself, the whole of one's life, unto Jehovah God. That's the symbolism of the burnt offering. The symbolism of the sin offering, that's the other one we want to focus on tonight, is that it was well a picture of our of atonement for sins. So that a part of the right there was what we read in verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. We read there, and he shall bring the bullock under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head and kill the bullock before the Lord. The one who sinned was to place his hand upon the animal that was about to be slain as a picture of the transfer of sin and guilt to that sacrificial animal so that that sacrificial animal was being killed in one's place. The, the judgment was coming upon that animal. Pointing to the atonement that needs to be made for our sins. So two different offerings. And perhaps you're wondering, well, why are you talking about these two? And how does any of this relate to the sermon this, morning, this evening? We mention these two in connection with each other because as we go through the book of Leviticus, what we find again and again and again is that God Himself coupled these two sacrifices together so that they were often offered together at the same time. And I'd like to take the time to demonstrate that. For example, in Leviticus 9, verse 3, this is a record of the first offerings that Aaron ever makes as a newly installed high priest. And we read in Leviticus 9, verse 3, say unto Aaron, or verse 2 rather, He said unto Aaron, Take thee a young calf for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. A sin offering and a burnt offering. Same thing in Leviticus 12, verse 6. For the mothers who had completed their days of purification, they had to bring two sacrifices. And what do we read? Leviticus 12, verse 6, And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, 
she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. The same pair of sacrifices. Same thing in Leviticus 15. Verses 14 and 15, for those who were unclean on account of some personal uncleanness, we read in Leviticus 15, verse 14, and on the eighth day he shall take to him two turtle doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and give unto them the priest. And the priest shall offer them the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Again, Leviticus 16, verses 3 and 5 here with, in connection with the great day of atonement. And thus shall Aaron, Leviticus 16, verse 3, and thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And then with, for the people of Israel, verse 5, and he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of goats for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering. There are other passages that point to this same thing. The sin offering and the burnt offering being put together. Now the question becomes, why? Why these two, again and again, linked together? God was teaching Old Testament Israel the very truth we're considering in Lord's Day 5. That if we are going to make satisfaction, we must give to God both the payment for our sin as well as a life of perfect obedience. We must give to God a payment for sin. That's what the sin offering pointed to. You must satisfy God's justice. There must be bloodshed. A life must be laid down because the the penalty for sin is death. There must be a sin offering. But that's not all. Because you still owe God a life of perfect obedience. And that's what the, the whole burnt offering was pointing to. You must give a life of perfect devotion, consecration, wholly given over unto Him. There must be both aspects. If you are going to be right with God, if you're going to avoid punishment and be received again into favor, because that's what's at stake here. It was true for Old Testament Israel. Because remember what happened to all those nations to whom He did not give His ceremonial law. Remember what happens to all the other nations who do not make the sacrifices. They're all destroyed. God raises up a different nation to punish the other nation that was more powerful before it. There's a picture of God's judgment coming upon them. Without these sacrifices, that's what is going to come upon us. And that was true even for the Old Testament Israelites. For those who did not make these sacrifices, on account of their uncleanness, they would have to live outside the camp. They were banished from God's presence. They were not allowed to stand there in His favor. So that God was teaching them the necessity of satisfaction. And the same holds true for us. Unless this satisfaction is made, both aspects of it, then the only thing that's going to come upon us is God's judgment. We will endure 
that temporal and eternal punishment otherwise. And not only that, we'll then miss out on that life of fellowship, the only thing that can satisfy the longings of the soul. Satisfaction must be made. And that leads us to cry out, well, who can make it? And that's where the catechism and the rest of the Lord's Day turns next. And before it teaches us the only it teaches us about the only one who can make satisfaction, it first teaches us about the creaturely impossibility of ever making such satisfaction. Does that in question and answers thirteen and fourteen, each of which proposes a an alternative. Well, what about this way? What about that way? Question 13 concerns, well, can we make this satisfaction? Question 14, can some other mere creature make it on our behalf? And we want to look at each in turn as the two halves of this second point. First, what about us? Can we make this satisfaction? That's question 13. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? The answer, by no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. We cannot make it. The reality is we can't make either half. It's not as though, well, we can come up with one half, but we fail on the other. No, it's we can't make satisfaction of the, the negative or the positive. We can't make satisfaction of the positive because there's no way for us to live that perfect life of obedience. Especially there's no way for us to make up for our past failures. Every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us has fallen short in living a life of perfect, perpetual obedience unto God. And the thing is that because there are already those holes in our obedience, there's no way for us to go back and to fill them up. So that even if we, Because even if we lived a life of perfect obedience moving forward, If we could go an entire day without falling short even one time, which is impossible, but hypothetically now, if that was possible, then we've only done what we already owe God, what's already required of us. So that at the end of that perfect day, I am still an unprofitable servant. There's no way of performing some deed that's going to give us a double merit that fills in a hole from before. There's no way to work overtime as it were so that we could take the overtime and apply it to our past debts. The reality is it's worse than that. It's not only that I can't make up for what that obedience that's lacking, but the reality is that I'm only ever increasing the debt. That's the point of answer 14. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Because every one of us is a sinner. Every day, every moment, we're continuing in a life of sin so that the the love debt that we owe, rather than decreasing because we're slowly paying it off, is only ever increasing. It's only going up. Because of that, we cannot make satisfaction of that obedience that God requires of us. That positive aspect of satisfaction. 
nor can we make the negative aspect. It's impossible for us to pay off that penalty, that punishment that we owe. And that's true because of the the nature of that punishment. We deserve eternal judgment. We've sinned against the Most High God. He's an infinite God. And because He's an infinite God, therefore we owe an infinite punishment, an eternal condemnation to come upon us. And there's no way for us to ever fully satisfy that. Because the reality is, even those who have been placed in hell on account of their sin, though they are indeed receiving the judgment that they deserve for their sins, they're never going to fully pay off what they owe. That satisfaction remains imperfect the entire time. And that's true of every one of us. None of us could endure it, get through it, get to the end of it. And that also means that none of us could take an eternal punishment somehow condensed down into a finite period of time, which is really what has to happen for it to be paid off. None of us could ever endure such a punishment because we're creatures. It would crush us. We could not bear up under such a judgment. And that's the point made at the very end of question 14, answer 14 when it says that no mere creature that applies to us can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin. So as, well, leave the rest of it off. So the point is, we cannot make satisfaction for ourselves. And again, this is something we see in the book of Leviticus and the ceremonial laws that God gives to His people. book of Leviticus begins in verse 1 with the Lord speaking to Moses out of the tabernacle of the congregation, out of the, the tent of meeting. God has come to dwell in their midst. But now for Him to dwell in the midst of a sinful people, there has to be some basis, some ground for Him to live there, to dwell among them, for them to enjoy His favor. And the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus are establishing the basis whereby a holy God can come and live in the midst of His people. And what does God tell him? What does He say? Here's the requirement if you want Me to live in your midst. He does not say, You need to perform some heroic deed. He does not say, inflict some penalty and punishment on yourself. Hurt yourself. He does not say, you must perform so many hours of religious service. But He says, bring an offering. A sacrifice. And what He's saying to Israel is you must look outside of yourself. He's saying in no uncertain terms, you cannot make satisfaction of yourself. It has to come from another. It must be one to do it in your place on your behalf. That's the message that comes to us in the book of Leviticus. We cannot do it. There's no way we can fulfill that basis for 
being received back into God's favor. You believe that, right? It's an important question. Because there are many who do not believe that. The great error that has run all throughout the history of the church is that man himself in some way, shape, or form can make satisfaction for himself. And because of the legalistic spirit in every single one of us, we too are tempted to the same thing. We too are inclined to such thinking that it's because of something I do that God is favorable toward me. We can think that about our suffering. I've been through a lot lately. There's been trial after trial after trial. Therefore, God, he, he really owes it to me to give me a season of prosperity. On account of all my suffering, I deserve a, some of God's favor to come upon me. Or we do it with our works so that we think, well, I said no to that sin that I've fallen into so many times before. This time I said no to it. And I. I did what I was supposed to for a while. And so surely God will now look upon me in His favor because I've been a good son for a while. Therefore, I can expect some blessing from Him. Or if it's not our suffering or our works, maybe it's our repentance and our faith. So that we think, really, I'm sorry for what I did and sought forgiveness. And because I've repented, because of my sorrow, surely God will look upon me in His favor for that reason. But all such thinking is entirely contrary to the gospel. God's word to us to His people in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, is that we must look outside of ourselves because we cannot make satisfaction ourselves. There must be another to do it on our behalf. So that as one author put it, I paraphrase and I add to what he said, it was not my works that were nailed upon the cross of Calvary. It was not my faith that was put upon that tree. It was not my repentance that was crucified there. Because not one of those things can make satisfaction. We cannot do it. That's the first alternative that the catechism holds up. What about us? Can we do it? And the catechism on the basis of Scripture says, by no means, absolutely not. We need someone else to do it for us. And that leads to the next question. Well, can another mere creature do it for us? I'm convinced I need someone else to do it, but 
Where are we going to find such a one? Can we find someone here on this earth? One who is a mere creature? That's question 14. Can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? And the answer is none. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. This question is really ruling out two different mere creatures. A mere creature that's not a man, some other creature, or another mere man on our behalf. So the first half was looking at whether I myself can make satisfaction. Second half of this second point is looking at, well, what about another on my behalf? First, maybe an animal or an angel. And then, well, what about another man? And the Catechism says no to either of those options as well. It cannot be some other creature that is something other than a man. The Catechism explains God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. God's justice demands that because man sinned, man himself must make satisfaction. Not an angel, nor some animal, a bull, a goat, a pigeon, whatever animal you might come up with. So that, he was, so that the catechism is reminding us that those Old Testament sacrifices though they were important types, nevertheless did not make satisfaction. They did not truly atone for sin. They merely pointed as a picture to the One who would atone for sin. And recognize that the Old Testament saints knew this. They understood that. And that's evident from what we read in the book of Hebrews about these Old Testament sacrifices. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. There we read, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The ones bringing the offerings cannot be made perfect thereby. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered because that worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin? It's saying, if those sacrifices made satisfaction, well, you would reach a point where you stop sacrificing. It would not be necessary anymore, but the very fact that they had to keep bringing them continually year after year after year was teaching the people It's not the sacrifices themselves. It's not the blood of this bull or this goat. But this is but a picture. It's pointing me ahead. That's what verses 3 and 4 make explicit. Hebrews 10, but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So it cannot be some other Creature that's not a man. Nor could it be some other mere man on our behalf. And that's the second half of question 14. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's 
wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. And that's also the point being made at the end of question answer 16. One who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. In other words, because I am a sinner, I have my own debt to pay. I must somehow make satisfaction for myself before I could ever try to help someone else. And because we've already seen I can't make satisfaction for myself, well, that means I'm never going to reach the point where I can try to assist somebody else in making satisfaction for them so that no other mere man can do it. And again, God made this clear to Old Testament Israel. He made it clear to them when Aaron, the high priest, beautiful type of Christ though he was, always had to make an offering for himself before he could ever make an offering on behalf of the people as a representative of the people. It's evident from Leviticus 9, for example. Leviticus chapter 9, these are the first offerings that Aaron had to bring. Verse 7 we read, And Moses said unto Aaron, Go unto the altar and offer thy sin offering and thy burnt offering and make atonement for thyself, Aaron, and then for the people. And offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them. First, take care of your own sins before you worry about the sins of the others. Same thing in Leviticus 16. Verses 11 and 15. This again as a part of the great day of atonement. Leviticus 16, verse 11. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And only after he's done that can he then function as a representative of the people. Verse 15. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do that, do with that blood as he did with the other. What this is teaching us and what this caught clearly the Old Testament saints is we cannot have another man, a mere man, make satisfaction on our behalf because even godly Aaron was a sinner. Scripture records some of his falls into sin. He could not do it. And that means for us, there's no mere man that can save us. Our parents cannot save us. Your preacher cannot save you. No one who is but a mere man can possibly make satisfaction. And all of this is to say that from a creaturely point of view, it's utterly impossible. I can't do it for myself. And I can't find another mere creature to do it on my behalf. That's the conclusion that the catechism brings us to. So that we see if, that if we were left to ourselves, there would be no hope. You see, with these different questions and answers. It's as though we've been trying to find some way of escape. First, we're going to try this route. And that leads to a dead end. So let's, 
let's backtrack and let's go down a different path. Maybe this is a way out. But no matter where we turn, no matter where we look, they all lead to dead ends. You see, that's exactly what needs to happen. Because it's only when we come to that dead end in despair of ourselves that we will ever look up and look to God to provide the mediator that we need. The one who is qualified to function as our representative and to make satisfaction on our behalf. And though Lord's Day 5 does not get to Him, it just leaves it as a theoretical. We're not going to leave it there. We want to end by looking at our qualified mediator and the satisfaction that He has made. Question 15 sets before us the qualifications of one who can make satisfaction. What sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? For one who is very man, perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also very God. Three qualifications. Very man, perfectly righteous, and very God. And now questions 16 and 17 explain why those three qualifications are necessary. First, question 16. Why must He be very man? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which hath also sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. Now praise be to God that Jesus Christ is indeed very man. Because as we've been taught, God's justice will not allow some other creature to be punished on our behalf. But God's justice will allow another man to function as our head and representative. And that's what Christ does. And that's why He had to become a man. This is why He was born of the woman. This is why He became partake of our flesh and blood. This is why He assumed a true human nature. So that He could represent us. So that He could function as our head and make satisfaction on our behalf. Jesus Christ is qualified in that He's very man. He's also qualified because He's perfectly righteous. That's the second qualification. Question 16 asks, why must He be very man and also perfectly righteous? Second half of the answer gets at that perfectly righteous part. One who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. We already explained that. And we saw that Jesus Christ therefore must be perfectly righteous. And He is. Yes, He's made like unto His brethren in all things, but with one exception. He was born without sin. Never once did He commit a sin. And therefore, Jesus Christ, when He came into this world, did not first have to make satisfaction for His own sins. He didn't have to endure the punishment that was coming to Him before He could then help us. But He was able to focus entirely on redeeming His people. And this too was a part of that Old Testament sacrificial system and the types and the shadows. Because what type of an animal has to be brought? 
Not the sick. Not the lame. Not the injured. But the Lamb without blemish. The One that was whole and sound. No imperfections. No sickness. No disease. That's the Lamb that had to be brought in the Old Testament because it was to be a picture of the Lamb that was to come. The One who was perfectly righteous and thus meeting this second qualification. So our Savior was was and is very man. He was and is perfectly righteous. He was and is very God. That too is a part of His qualification. And that's question and answer 17. Why must He in one person be also very God? That He might, by the power of His God, had sustained in His human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. He had to be very God because no creature could endure an infinite punishment. No mere creature could ever get through God's wrath so that it was fully paid out, fully satisfied. Praise be to God that He provided a mediator who is both God and man able to sustain that burden without being crushed by it. Able to get through it. That's our qualified mediator. And it's as our mediator that He then made satisfaction on our behalf. And He made satisfaction of both aspects. The positive and the negative. He made satisfaction of the punishment we deserve. Because Jesus Christ is our sin offering. He is that Lamb without blemish. Upon whom all of the sins of all of His people were placed so that it was as though every one of us passed by and laid our hand upon His head. Our sin and guilt transferred to Him. And He then carried that sin and guilt to the cross of Calvary where He endured the punishment we deserve. He suffered the wrath of God that would have otherwise come to us. He is our sin offering. And He's thereby paid the debt that we owe. But He's not just our sin offering. He not only made satisfaction of the punishment, He also made satisfaction of the the obedience because He is our whole burnt offering. He's the One who lived a life of perfect devotion. Complete consecration. He gave the whole of Himself unto Jehovah God. He fulfilled that love debt that we owe. It's on the basis of His saving work, therefore, that there is now escape for us from the punishment we deserve. We do not need to fear God's wrath coming upon us. We don't have to worry about what's going to happen to us the day that we die because He's rescued us. No way of escape in and of ourselves, but He has plucked us out of that. He's delivered us. Because He is our sin offering. But the wonder of our salvation is more than that we've been rescued. The wonder of our salvation is we are now received back into God's favor. 
on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience. That whole burnt offering. We can have life with God. We can speak to Him and hear Him speak to us. We can enjoy fellowship with His God. We can know His favor shining down upon us. That's what Lord's Day 5 and 6 teaches us. And thus, we are left with two questions tonight, very briefly. First, do you believe in this Savior? Because as we've seen, there is no escape otherwise. For all those who reject the one and only mediator who's qualified, the only thing you can expect is that temporal and eternal punishment for your sin. Thus, the call of the gospel is repent and believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. Look to Him. Trust Him for your salvation. And that brings us to the second question. Are we astonished by this? Is hearing of God's grace in Jesus Christ the sweetest sound we've ever heard? Does this song of our salvation fill our hearts and souls with rapture? May God use this Word to stir up within every one of His people tonight a renewed sense of wonder and amazement at the glorious salvation that is found in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give Thee thanks for reminding us that there is salvation in none other than Jesus Christ. We give Thee thanks for reminding us that we could not save ourselves, nor could we find another that is a mere creature to save us. And we pray that Thou will apply this Word to our hearts so that we might be filled with a sense of gratitude and thankfulness for that salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. And may that gratitude so fill our hearts that we now present ourselves as living sacrifices unto Thee. For that is indeed our reasonable service. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.